This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called Shopping and Fretting, The Ethics of Buying the Right Thing, and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2014 at the Barbican in London. Okay, hi everyone. Presumably you're all here because you spend a lot of time fretting. (laughs) Um, So anyway, yes, we are here to talk about uh, shopping and fretting. Uh, the Ethics of Buying the Right Thing. Uh, looking at uh, various pieces of literature for, um, uh, for this session, I thought there were three sort of um, uh, broad areas of, uh, of, of interest um, that I thought we, uh, we might get to. Uh, one is uh, the practicality. How do we know uh, what is the, the ethical choice? There seems to be hundreds of competing label, labelling systems, uh, for instance, uh, for all sorts of different types of con- consumer goods. Uh, there's consumer politics. Uh, is changing our individual behaviour the way uh, to, make a, uh, to make a change on um, uh, a global scale in a, a, a globalised world? And thirdly, what are our attitudes to developing economies? So, uh, for instance, are sweatshops um, simply uh, a stage of economic development that, uh, that, you know, as economies develop, they'll, they'll get out of. That said, uh, we can talk about anything. I hope you'll have lots of, uh, lots of questions and points. Each of our panel will speak for five to seven minutes uh, to lay out their stall and just uh, give you their ideas on this uh, subject. Then we'll have a quick ch- chat up here and then it's, uh, it'll be over to you. So I'll... Uh, introduce our speakers briefly in the order that they're going to uh, speak. So firstly on my left, Barbara Crowther is Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Fairtrade Foundation, um, whose website says is the only independent guarantee of a better deal for the third world. That's is that a surprise? Is that, does our website still yeah. say that? Because we dropped that language years ago. Third world, yes. It doesn't say that on the current website, I don't think. If it does, I'm going to change it. It said it today, yeah. I checked. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, second to speak, also on my left, is Andrew uh, Opie, who's Director of Food and Sustainability at the British Retail Consortium, who are sponsoring this session. And his remit includes sustainable sourcing and production, climate change and ethical labour. Sandy Black, on my immediate left, is profession- Professor of Fashion and Textile Design and Technology at the London College of Fashion, editor and co-author of the Sustainable Fashion Handbook, and has her own uh, knitwear fashion label. She also has, uh, as you'll see here, two of the largest coffee table books ever. <laughs> um, I'm sure she'll uh, uh, sign one for you if you have not uh, Natalie Rothschild is a producer and reporter for Sweden's public ra- uh, service radio and a freelance writer for the likes of the Wall Street Journal, Slate, Harrods, um, The Australian and Vice, and she has a particular interest in uh, the idea of uh, consumer power. <laughs> so, uh, Barbara, five to seven minutes. Uh, I've explained the yellow and red card system, yeah. so um, I won't use them unless I need to. But um, probably will. I do have a stopwatch. Okay. All right. Thank, thanks very much, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. As, as somebody who tweets under the name Chocoholics, <laughs> I think my shopping, my shopping habits are rather uh, transparent uh, to the public. Um, it's 20 years uh, this year. In fact, this week uh, we celebrated 20 years of the fair trade mark here in the UK. There were three products back in uh, 1994, Maya Gold, Green and Black Maya Gold, uh, Café Direct Coffee and Clipper Tea. And uh, I remember at the time everybody said, you know, this is just a momentary fad. 
um, and wouldn't uh, last. And all those three products are still available today alongside 4,500 others from more than 400 companies. Um, all the major food and drink retailers um, stock some uh, fair trade products. It's about a £1.7 billion pound, uh, market uh, here in the UK. And what we know is that last year... Um, at, on the back of uh, fair trade sales, uh, the, the core of the guarantee and the better deal that, that we refer to on our website, whether we're the only guarantee, I tried to get rid of that language a, a while ago, and definitely the language of third world, I dropped that from the mark uh, when I started at the foundation a few years ago, um, that I think first, second, third world, all of those boundaries have, have really gone, that's something of the past. Uh, but what we ensure is that there's a safety net minimum price, not a, ma not a fixed price, but a minimum price for producers when they sell into the fair trade market. And on top of that, a premium payment, like a bonus payment, uh, typically around 10% uh, of, of, the, of the crop or product price uh, that goes as a fair trade premium. And the UK market, in premiums alone, delivered around £26 million pounds of additional value back into the hands of the farmers' organisations uh, that, that were selling on fair trade terms last year. So, as... Uh, Jason said, there are thousands of ethical labels, not to mention all the other claims that sit on our product. It's a bewildering array of choice that is out there and can be really confusing. Um, what we know is that fair, the fair trade mark has risen to become the most recognised here in the UK, but also the one that people can fair, about two-thirds of the, of the public can fairly accurately um, say what it means in terms of that better trade deal going back to the farmers and workers selling. Um, and I think we've, we've been successful in doing that, not because we've been asking people to fret um, or been trying to make people feel guilty, but because we've offered a positive choice, a chance to make a positive difference. Not, when I dis describe what that's about, I, I try not to say this, this is all the nasties have been taken out. What it means if you buy a product with the fair trade mark, it means that there's a very poor community somewhere in the world that has grown the raw ingredients for that product and your purchase is returning a little bit over and above what conventional trade would be delivering back to them so that they can use trade, not aid, as a means of lifting the, their, themselves a little bit further towards um, the future that they want to see. Um, and I remember very, a, a long time ago seeing a, a poster when I was a student saying, don't buy my harvest cheap, then offer me charity. And I think that's the kind of principle that has sat at the heart of the fair trade system. And I think that's the vision that people have actually been inspired by and wanted to become part of in order, and, and make a positive choice. And I think when we talk about ethics, sometimes we tend to kind of get ourselves into a little bit of a moral kind of battleground. And, and actually... Ethics which are rooted in our values are, are so manifold. It's not just about doing the green thing or doing the social justice thing. Actually, we all have a whole um, spectrum of values uh, where, that we take with us when we go shopping. Um, and we all carry all of them. And there's some fantastic uh, research, uh, people like Tim Casser at the University of Illinois, who have, who have said no matter where you go in the world, they all broadly boil down into a set that would be broadly considered to be our um, intrinsic values, which are about um, the ones that require some form of approval, 
um, that, that are to do with our self-identity, our sense of power, wealth, um, and our sort of self-actualization. And then there are another set of values um, that are about desire to see a better world, community, creativity. Um, and we're all taking all of this shopping with us every time we go. And the question, and, but, but, and any one of those values can be triggered at any time. Um, and so, and so, and, and our values then influence our, our behaviour. What we know is that the majority of people are concerned about global issues, are concerned about poverty, inequality, environmental issues. Um, Two-thirds two of British people say they're concerned or very concerned about what the future looks like around those issues. What we also know is that our expectations of companies to behave responsibly are pretty high, but our trust in their ability to deliver that responsibility is pretty low. Depending on which research survey you look at, it tends to be somewhere between 35 and 40 percent um, of people actually trust that businesses or say that they believe businesses can be trusted to do the right thing and to behave uh, responsibly. Um, and in a recent survey by the Institute of Grocery Distribution, around 73% of people said that they would shun products that didn't meet high ethical standards. Um, so we've got people wanting to do the right thing. Now, we spend about £196 billion a year here in the UK on food and drink alone. Okay, um, And when we go into the shops... All of those ethics are going in there with us. And so we might want to do the right thing. We might say we're going to shun products um, <laughs> that aren't, aren't ethical. But then all those other uh, extrinsic values to do with price and promotion and equality and taste and um, brand and brand association and what that means about us, they all kick into play when we're shopping. And that means that sometimes our ethics and our desire to do the right thing, to, to proactively pick a product, proactively shun another product, it kind of, it kind of gets all a little bit blurred. Um, however, consumer power can play a role in delivering some of those values back to you. So we know that over the years, supermarkets, in response to what individual consumers have done when they've gone into store, the choices they have made, free-range eggs, British meat, fair-trade bananas, means that increasingly retailers have then done a little bit of choice editing on our on our behalf. Um, and so in, if you go into Waitrose Co-op and Sainsbury's today, all their bananas are fair trade. You've still got all the choices. You've got the organic, the bagged, the loose, the little ones, the big ones. But, you've, but you know that they're all traded on fair trade terms. And I think that's been really important. So consumer power has had an impact in terms of how businesses then mainstream some of those principles and those standards into how they do business. And hopefully the more they do that, the more our trust in their ability to deliver that will grow. There are then some... Uh, one last Go point. On there are some issues, though, I believe, um, where actually it can't be left to the individual consumer and it can't be left to the companies alone, where we need government to act. We saw that with Rana Plaza. Um, we're seeing it with the modern slavery bill, where even business itself has said, let's put transparency into supply chains, into our government regulation around slavery. These are crimes of humanity. It's not a voluntary thing. We shouldn't be picking the products that are slave-free and the products that are not. Um, um, this is something that we should mainstream across industry. And so I do believe we've, we've got a consumer power that works individually, consumer power that collectively can influence business practice, um, and government needs to play a role in helping us drive that. Andrew. 
So, um, looking at the title, are we all fretting when we go shopping? Well, I was in my local supermarket this morning. I didn't see that many people fretting externally <laughs> where they were picking up their apples and pears and various other things. But I think it would be wrong to say that the people there that were shopping with me this morning aren't interested in the basic ethics that drive the production of their products. They absolutely are. But what they are doing is they are putting their trust in retailers or brands to deliver those products that they expect would meet their own ethical choices. And that relies, therefore, on trust. And any business who's been through the, some of the supply chain sh uh, shocks that we've had in the last few years will know what happens when that trust breaks down and how quickly consumers will react to that. So whilst we not, might not be fretting every time we're in a supermarket, I think our aspirations and the uh, ability to meet those aspirations is key to any successful food business. And that was very interesting for us when... We've left these, this is a free offer, by the way, these are all available to you, Great Expectations, was a series we ran with NGOs, retailers and suppliers to look at what really makes trust and what builds trust in a supply chain. And there was three things that really came out of that strongly. First of all, that trust in either a brand or, or a company is built over a long period, and that is alongside what you might be offering on the food. So it's everything from board level right down to the products that you offer. And if something goes wrong, the companies that have a better trust have a better chance of communicating their issues to their consumers. Secondly, the best companies anticipate consumers changing expectations on things like ethical issues, environmental issues, and will build those issues into their supply chain controls. And lots of this is delivered in the supply chain that none of us as consumers would ever see because what the companies are doing is taking any risk of something going wrong in the first place. So that's horizon scanning, testing, auditing, all of those sorts of things. Finally, transparency or visibility, as I hear people calling it a lot more now. So it's not necessarily that you want to be told the whole time what's going on in your supply chain, but you want to know that the information is available should you want to know. So what are the websites like? What are the information available? Is it giving you enough visibility to answer any queries that you might have at some time? So what retailers are doing is they're trying to align their product offer to make sure they're meeting the majority of us in terms of our ethical needs. So you will shop with them because what they're building is a brand. And what underpins their brand is core values which they hope will resonate with you as consumers. And one damage to one part of the brand, as we <coughs> saw in horse meat, can quickly affect the whole brand. And therefore, they will be looking at common standards and uh, ensuring the right supply chain right across the piece. doesn't mean that there aren't uh, choices there for different consumers who may want to put um, extra premium, for example, into other products. But actually what we find, particularly in this market, is as things evolve, consumers want more for the same price. So they want all that they're getting at the moment, and you just bolt something else on to answer their problems for the same price. Now this means there's challenges for retailers, and probably the biggest challenge is how we continue to deliver all of these things, changing kind of uh, UK consumer uh, perception of what's right in a changing global market. So whereas 10 years ago, UK retailers would have had a huge influence on how products are supplied around the world, our influence is waning um, against developing countries, emerging economies, who are able to buy products. And if you were supplying somebody in, an, in, in a country, you know, why would you jump through the hoops to give what the UK retailer may, might want when you can sell it to another country who's probably going to pay you about the same for it but won't demand all of the extra whistles and bells that a UK retailer would. So how do we answer that? Well, the thing that we're seeing is really key is collaboration. 
So that's bringing together like-minded companies and countries, for that matter, to tackle the issue. So you send a big enough signal to those markets that there is a market and there is a price to be paid and you will guarantee supply to produce those goods in the way that we want them. The other advantage of collaboration, which we're seeing increasingly, for example, with the US and Western European countries, you can also exert more pressure on governments. Because if you look at roles and responsibilities, whilst retailers absolutely have a role, and Barbara's touched upon that, whether it's ethical auditing, whether it's ensuring what's on the label is what it says on the label, there are some underlying issues which can only be delivered by government. And therefore, we need to be clear to say to government where their responsibilities lie, where retailers and where jointly we can make a difference. So if I think about the Thai prawns issue recently, which you might have read about, that wasn't actually in the Thai prawn supply chain. That was in the fish meal supply chain. So fish meal was being harvested. Uh, forced labour on boats was hoovering up this fish, which was then going into fish meal, part of which was going into the supply chain for Thai prawns, which were then being exported to us in the U.S., so what do we do? So we got together with U.S. retailers and wrote to the Thai government to say, you need to address basic human rights issues in your own country. It's a basic enforcement issue um, that you need to tackle alongside the audits that are happening. Because if you don't, you are risking your exports and your own GDP by your lack of compliance on basic issues. So I would say, do consumers have ethical values and do they fret about them? Yes, but I don't think with, it's not front of mind every time you step into a supermarket. I think the average consumer spends in a supermarket between four and six seconds making a choice when they're actually at the, um, the shelf itself. So there isn't a great deal of time to agonise around choice. Labels are important, obviously. But I think if we as retailers or brands fail to keep up with either what consumers expect us to deliver or certainly um, are able to control what we, um, what we deliver on the shelf then the consequences for that retailer or brand are absolutely enormous, as we've seen in some of the recent supply chain shocks. Hi. <clears throat> Hello. Um, I work at the Centre for Sustainable Fashion at University of the Arts, based at London College of Fashion. So how about that? Um, sustainable fashion. How can we have sustainable fashion? We're working very hard towards that, but it's, as you know, it's really... <coughs> Uh, very complex. I mean, this is one of the industries that's one of the highest uh, in terms of um, uh, economic uh, value, but also um, one of the ones that's most complex in terms of its supply chain. So as a notion, sustainable fashion seems to be a real paradox. How can fashion ever be sustainable when it's focused on novelty and inbuilt obsolescence? Business is full of contradictions because we have the craftsmanship of couture and bespoke set against the high-volume um, cheap fashion, where, which might be characterised by fast, 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 cheap, 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 now, now, now. But on the other hand, we have um, the luxury of uh, Fifth Avenue and the image of, for instance, the red carpet... Um, where uh, gowns might be worn that are aspirational, that are uh, also vintage, but then um, contrasted with the poverty of many producer communities, which has become a much more visible issue. Uh, but the transience of fashion styles and its reinvention actually also sustains um, uh, the, the, the economic cycle of industries that depend on that, and that's particularly in um, developing countries which have created fashion 
um, industries um, in order to sort of really uh, be at the height of their economic um, output. But the wasteful cycles of seasonal change which sustain livelihoods, um, they, they also create this uh, mountains of waste. So we do have, there's a lot of problems, and it's not unique to the fashion industry, but the fashion industry is actually often held up, you know, uh, as um, something which is uh, more guilty than others. I would dis necessarily dispute that. But what, whether we're involved in the creation or production, communication, or representation of fashion, or we're simply consumers, which all of us are. Um, everyone's implicated in, in all of these issues, and I think that solutions to the um, endemically unsustainable system actually have to be taken across the board. So it does um, work across from government level to individual action. And people often think, well, what can I do when I'm shopping? Because actually when people are shopping... Um, they're just really, they're often shopping on impulse. But um, if those products are well designed and with a sort of full life cycle um, thought through, then the <coughs> guilt, we don't have to be guilty. We won't have to be guilty when we're trying shopping for fashion. We can enjoy fashion because the power of fashion is really important to us. Um, it can do many things. It, it's a, a form of personal expression. It can uh, engender belonging. It can also make you stand out. You can, it can communicate, whether it's sexuality, whether it's belonging to a particular group, and so on and so on. Um, but it's been like that for you know, as long as people have adorned their bodies. Um, but it can perform many roles as a, as a social catalyst and so on, and um, functioning as a sort of interface between the personal and the public. So it's a very complex um, set of issues that are uh, surrounding fashion. Um, I, I believe that um, obviously we might just want to be cool. Um, but the, this is a, a major industry and it's actually uh, worth more than something like the aerospace and the automotive industry put together, uh, people working throughout the industry from manufacturing through to retail. So really... What uh, sorts of new narratives can we actually um, sustain? Because these are really important. We have to uh, not do business as usual. We have to look for different ways. And that's the responsibility of, the, of everybody along that supply chain. I'm particularly working at the sort of designer end of um, the... Uh, Obviously, through education at the Centre for Sustainable Fashion, we're, we're looking at catalyzing new approaches to fashion, new models and new ways of doing things, thinking about things differently. Um, so I do believe um, that this agenda, which has now become aware, suddenly the beginning of the supply chain uh, has become more visible. <laughs> suddenly, um, not just until the Rana Plaza disaster, but f certainly since then, that has created much more awareness at the great, awful cost of all those lives. But that wasn't the first disaster. That's fully um, understood. But I think that instead of just thinking that, that clothes are born in the shop, I think we've, we've, consumers have become much more disengaged. And the question is to engage people with narratives, with more understanding of how the clothes are made, where they come from, um, and also how they can be disposed of. Because a lot of... Um, the fretting that comes from shopping for clothes actually comes from you as you use your clothes or wash them um, and, and actually use far more energy 
uh, and water in, in that cycle of, of washing your clothes than was used in their production in, in, in most cases. You know, so it's, it's not an easy scenario, and that's why I've written such tomes, <laughs> um, trying to give some different perspectives and to sort of look at ways and strategies that we can create new narratives and that people have approached and do approach. We have everything from um, the, the government initiatives that were launched um, in 2007. We had MS do Plan A, which has, has been very successful um, in terms of generating different types of um, awareness, even at washing at lower temperatures and that, that sort of thing. We have uh, even companies such as H&M um, are actually have a, a massive program underway. And those large companies can make a lot of difference. But the smaller ones, like the slow food business, the small independent designers can often really raise the bar. And you only have to think of how Catherine Hamnett's uh, message um, was put across, um, clean up or die. A <laughs> um, couple of quotes from different companies. Uh, for this, these books, I've interviewed many people. Um, Dries van Noten says, I want to make clothes for real people who will wear them for a long time. Um, then an American company, Eileen Fisher, they say sustainability needs the whole company, the whole supply chain and engaged consumers. So let me leave it there. Well, ethical shopping just sounds so great. It's like one of those concepts that seem to be inherently good. Because who argues for unethical shopping? It's a bit like sustainable development or good governance. Who wants destructive development or bad governance? But when you start unpicking what ethical shopping actually involves, I think things are not that straightforward. So when you look at the way it's promoted by businesses and the way it's adopted by consumers, a lot of paradoxes arise. And I would like to use the clothing company American Apparel as a kind of case study uh, in my introduction. I think it illustrates very well the paradoxical nature of the concept of ethical shopping and ethical business. So the background, I'm sure um, all of you are familiar with this company, but just briefly, the idea is that it provides sweatshop-free clothing. So that's the basic concept. Everything is, in America, uh, is um, made in America. The factory is in Los Angeles. The company's website compares the average wage of garment workers in Bangladesh, which is, it says, $600 a year, to that of an American apparel garment worker in LA, which is $30,000. So $600 in Bangladesh, $30,000 in the US. And very soon after American apparel moved into the retail market, it ranked among the 500 fastest-growing companies in the United States. That was back in 2005. So clearly the idea of sweatshop-free leotards and T-shirts made by Americans in L.A. rather than by Bangladeshis in Dhaka, that's something that went down very well with consumers, and the company has grown, of course, to become a global brand. But these days, uh, wearing American apparel clothes is not the same kind of identity marker that it was a decade ago. In recent years, the company's uh, image as this supremely ethical ride-on corporation has been challenged. So many now regard the brand um, as tarnished because it's become associated with sexism and misogyny uh, as much or if not uh, more as with fair working conditions. So while it's still not seen as a place, I think, 
where garment workers are exploited, it is seen as a place where women are taken advantage of. That's a public perception anyway. So the paradox here is that this company started essentially on the basis of boycott and then has ended up being the target of boycott uh, because it essentially encouraged consumers to opt out of brands that do use sweatshop labor. And today, many refuse to shop at that company, at American Apparel, because they feel it is behaving unethically. So I think this shows how fickle the idea of ethical business is. There's no timeless notion uh, of business ethics that companies can adopt in ways that consumers will find acceptable forever. I think also it's naive to think that ethics can be the primary drive for business. It makes If it makes business sense to promote ethics, then a company like American Apparel will promote it. If it makes business sense to be unethical, then the company will be unethical. Like, it's no coincidence that American Apparel eventually decided to create an image for itself that would be seen as morally dubious rather than morally righteous. And, and here's what I mean by that. So last year, Dove Charney, the former uh, now-fired CEO of American Apparel, said... In an interview with Vice, uh, that, and, and I paraphrase, uh, people don't want sexy lingerie that have come out of sweatshops. So he, he, he talked about how that's poor branding and that it can harm your reputation. It's not what you want to think about when you're in, in bed, basically trying to be sexy um, sweatshops. So, but he does go on in the same interview to defend the minimum wage and he gives other arguments for avoiding sweatshops beyond the fact that it's not sexy, to be fair. But when he launched the idea of sweatshop-free clothing himself, he must have also realised that it was a clever business idea. It was a good brand identity for his company. But later on, coming across as immoral also became a selling point for American Apparel. So its marketing director is called Ryan Holiday. He's talked about how he and his colleagues deliberately created controversial ad upon controversial ad, knowing that the media and the internet would pick up on it. So they've run ads with naked models, with, uh, with ex-porn stars, with pets having sex. And this creates outrage. Outrage generates lots of basically uh, free publicity. So Ryan Holiday, the marketing director, referred to this strategy as media manipulation, which arguably is unethical. So uh, what many have accepted to be uh, ethical employment terms made business sense for this company. What many have described as unethical marketing and imagery also made business sense for the same company. So the point is that I, uh, it's foolish to expect businesses to be driven by anything other than what makes business sense or the profit motive, if, if you will. So it makes sense for some companies not to set up factories in countries like Bangladesh. But is it ethical? When we try to pressure corporations into shutting down their operations in poor countries, is that an act of solidarity? Only buying clothes made in the West can make us feel less guilty about what we're wearing, but it also means denying millions the chance to work. So take Bangladesh. Uh, in just 40 years, it's become the world's second largest apparel manufacturer behind only China, there are over 5,000 clothing factories in the country today. The garment and textile industry has become, crap, <laughs> the key foreign income earner, and it's forecast to quadruple in size over the next uh, 20 years. So the industry today employs 4 million people, mostly women, who get to enjoy the independence and social freedom that comes with earning their own wages in cities. And... Um, 
And last December, Bangladesh introduced a 79% increase in the minimum monthly wage, raising it to $68. Without textiles, Bangladesh's economy would collapse. So the manufacturing trade, in other words, has driven progress. And it's a process that can be frustratingly slow, but it's helping people get ahead. It's helping people escape poverty. So we in the West today are benefiting from centuries of development, process that developing countries are trying to emulate, only it's happening a lot faster in places like Bangladesh than it did here. So you could say that American apparel is being unethical when it chooses not to contribute to Bangladeshi's efforts to escape the poverty trap. And just finally, what does this mean for us, the consumers? Firstly, it means that shopping, something that should be either just practical or enjoyable, has turned into something problematic and anxious-ridden. Second, it means that the idea of consumer power has, become, has come to be seen as the most effective way to have an impact on the world. But paradoxically, this only disempowers people with lesser means. Because if our ability to affect society is dependent on our ability to choose how and what we consume, then that means that only the wealthy or the relatively wealthy have proper power. So I think corporations and factories and so on should take responsibility for offering safe and good work conditions. But I don't think there's anything ethical about shutting down factories because we decided that the conditions are not ideal. I don't think there's anything ethical about denying poor countries the chance to develop just because we've turned shopping into a source of guilt. OK, so we'll just uh, kick things off um, up here, having a bit of a, a, a chat first of all. And, um, and then I'll bring you guys in. So, um, uh, Barbara, you talked about um, uh, a safety net and, and minimum prices and an ethics rooted um, in our values. But, um, I, I mean, fair trade has come in for a bit of criticism uh, recently. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the uh, Christopher Kramer report, the SOAS report, um, into Uganda and Ethiopia, uh, who's, uh, that, that found um, that farmers were actually... Fair trade farmers were were paid worse than um, the comparable farmers. That their um, the, the social premium benefits you were talking about, like health health care health care clinics, were actually too expensive for fair trade farmers to use, um, and the, the restrictions that fair trade puts um, on its farmers means that they're unable to grow their businesses and get out of poverty that way. Okay. Um, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know which report you've read, but actually the Chris Kramer report didn't study farmers at all. It right. studied workers um, in supply chains. And unfortunately, what they did was they compared workers on very large scale coffee farms selling all their coffee into, say, the Illy or very high quality Italian supply chain with temporary, casual and seasonal workers who were working for small scale cooperatives some of whom were selling some of their coffee into fair trade supply chains. So when you ask questions, how many days work do you get, you're going to get full-time workers and part-time workers, seasonal and temporary workers. And so there was a lot, there's, there's a lot to be challenged in that report. What it did highlight, I think, was the complexity um, and some of these dilemmas that I, th I think have been raised. And um, it is true that, that and the, what, the one thing that that report didn't do, it, so it looked at the workers, but it then didn't go up to the farmers employing those workers and ask what their ability to pay the farmers uh, really was and what proportion of their products were being sold into the cooperative that was fair trade certified. So it didn't do that. It's, it's um, a broader criticism. But, but that's the, the, there's, a, there's a valid criticism, which is about how far, how far can these things reach and the complexities of global development. So 
where where we audit and check that the that the supply chains are delivering um, is at the farmer organisation level. We make sure those payments go in. It's the farmer's decision then how they spend their money. And in the case of very small-scale farmers, typically they've invested in trying to build their cooperative, trying to repair rural roads and all the rest of it. They've not, because they're, the nature of their employment of workers tends to be quite a lot. Quite a lot of the, the, the workers are themselves farmers, so they're doing labour exchange and things like that. So then picking up salary levels becomes very complicated, actually. Um, so, but they, they haven't yet got to the stage where they see themselves as employers. Where fair trade is operating, where they didn't, where, where, where that report didn't study, was where we, are, where we are certifying those large plantations, where we've got very robust standards and there's plenty of reports showing what they're delivering. It, it, it's right to say, though, that it's not, it's not perfect and it is very, very difficult. And the challenge that we have in fair trade is that if, if you have a cooperative that is certified against the standards and trying to live to the standards, if they only sell 5% of their coffee or their tea, or whatever it is, into the fair trade system, they're still 95% dependent on either selling the rest into the local market, the regional market, or just conventional trade generally. And so sometimes it's very, very difficult to get enough of the benefits flowing on a consistent basis to be able to tackle all of the many issues that they face at a local level. But it doesn't mean that where the benefits do flow, it isn't making a difference because we've gone out and done independent research and audits and all the rest of it, and, and it does make a difference. OK. Mm. Um, Andrew, I'm kind of confused what your, what your role is, really. So on, on uh, one level, you're um, a trade association, so you would presumably represent the mm -hmm. interests of your members. On the other hand, uh, you seem to be lobbying the UK government to take responsibility um, for the ethics of Thai businesses. No, what? we weren't uh, lobbying no. the UK government. We were lobbying the Thai government, right, on behalf of our members and US retailers. Members. Okay. So um, we coordinated a response across all the major retailers, as did our colleagues in America, to be able to demonstrate to the Thai government the value of the market that they were potentially putting at risk. And we've done exactly the same with the Modern Slavery Bill. So when we gave evidence to the scrutinising committee we made it clear that our members supported the transparency um, provisions that Barbara mentioned there, which actually aren't currently in the bill, but we are confident at some point will appear in the bill. So all it is really is uh, an appreciation by um, our members that there are some things that they can influence and they should absolutely take responsibility for that and they will be judged as a business on how well they do. But there are some things where you need a collective voice to be able to influence a government to underpin some of the key compliance issues. So in Bangladesh, although retailers did collectively step in to do um, building surveying, for example, mm. there, they were doing ethical audits before, which are around labour, fire, you know, fire safety, all the health and safety, all those sorts of issues. Now, so the question, therefore, is what is the role of those host governments there in terms of maintenance of basic human rights in the Thai case yeah. or basic safety provisions in the Bangladesh case. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and uh, Sandy, I thought that the, the um, really interesting thing that, I wanted, uh, that you said that I wanted to pick up on is um, uh, that we, uh, we might uh, just want to be cool 
when it comes to uh, um, fashion. And I think, you know, obviously there is the aspirational aspect of high-end fashion. But at the same time, do you not, um, do you see, um, when it comes to uh, lower-end fashion, there's, there's something about um, kind of buying from Primark or something that, uh, you know, if you choose not to do that, you're sort of, you're setting yourself above the hoi polloi. You're making a... Uh, uh, you, you know, you're making a statement about the kind of person you are, and that seems to be, you know, there's something of a I'm not one of them people about the, that discussion, it seems to me. Uh, no, that's not what I'm in at all, actually. <laughs> um, I think you could be cool at any level of financial, um, you know, uh, whether it's the sort of street and the punk uh, movement, which is, starts off as a sort of anti-fashion but then gets absorbed by fashion. Um, I actually think, and also the, what's interesting is the diffusion of, of fashion and the democratisation of what was called high fashion. When I talk about designers, there are designers working at all levels of the industry. Um, so actually I'm looking across the spectrum, so you have to work with all areas. Um, and I think that um, what fashion does for people... Um, even, you know, high street fashion, which obviously feeds off uh, catwalks, sort of a higher, if you like, higher level or designer level, more innovation level. Um, what that does is it allows people who maybe otherwise couldn't have afforded access to fashion um, to be able to, to buy into that. However, there is, there is huge responsibility from those companies to do uh, the business of fashion far more ethically and far more responsibly um, so that those customers don't necessarily have to feel guilty. Um, so actually, that, so, that, so that's what's happened, except what's happened is it's, it's overheated, uh, you know, so we've got far m much more consumption than is really realistic. Um, so being able... So if the price of low-end fashion has to rise, in a way, in order to reflect, um, the, you know, the same level that, that, to reflect these sort of better wages uh, in the manufacturing um, businesses. But that's not what you were asking I, I, exactly. But I think that um, uh, I, I think that actually you can be cool, as I say, uh, on a shoestring. Um, and you can be cool. It's not just a, a, a price label um, uh, situation there. Um, and Natalie, your, um, your American apparel example, it's... Isn't that, um, isn't that an example of ethical shopping working? I mean, if, um, you know, we, um, as, as, as ethical beings, uh, you know, we choose to do the right thing, we do that on an individual basis, don't we? Um, and so American Apparel, you know, had that image, it lost the image and, and uh, you know, became this kind of sexist... Um, uh, sexist, a uh, brand associated with uh, with the sexism and misogyny, and then people stopped buying it. So that's a uh, it worked, didn't it? Uh, I don't know if people stopped buying it. I haven't seen their sales figures. I mean, obviously, it worked. That has worked for them too. They've made that it was a conscious decision, and you can listen to a very interesting lecture by the marketing uh, um, manager who I, who I cited, where actually it seemed to me to be a conscious decision. I don't know how it's affected their their sales. Um, but obviously, I think they started, uh, were tapped into and then sort of 
um, entrenched, I guess, a trend, that they realized that, that there was a trend for this and it made, it made business sense to, to do that for them. And obviously it's something that um, not all consumers, but, but many consumers um, find that satisfactory to, to go to a company that labels themselves as ethical fashion. So, yeah, it works. From the, but I don't think we should sort of delude ourselves into thinking that that is the primary drive of business and it, and it can never be. And this might be uh, a fad, you know, it might be a fashion in itself to, to be ethical and organic and sustainable and all the rest of it. It's, it's a sign of our times and, you know, that's a big discussion about whether that is, why that is the case. Um, but, I mean, I see that as a trend, as a fashion in itself. So. Hmm. Okay, we'll shut up for a bit. Over to you. <laughs> oh, lots of hands. Okay, I'll um, start right up the um, at the back there. Um, keep your hands up for a minute, please. Um, my question is to the general panel overall. I have two points. The first is um, regarding the case of American Apparel. Um, when you discuss that company in particular, regard to ethics, I also thought about ethics in a non-market sense. The idea of ethical. Um, shopping in terms of brand images. American Apparel are notorious for, for example, selling T-shirts such as Don't Eat to promote eating disorders or selling Native American headdresses to fetishize Native American tribes or the, company, the founder of the company famously said, I only sell clothes up to a UK size 12 because I believe fat people shouldn't wear my clothes. So I was thinking about ethics maybe in a non-market sense but also maybe in a moral sense and how the two interact. And my second question is to the panel overall, which is people are talking about how they believe that you can balance the idea between having an ethical market with transparency of supplies. But when push comes to shove, do you really think that we will ever be able to have uh, a free and transparent market when Western consumers will ultimately have to pay more for the same product? I can't see corporations wanting to take a cut in their profits to give more to the workers, the middlemen, I mean, to give more to the workers while keeping prices low. Yet simultaneously, I can't see when, you know, when the credit crunch, times are hard, people paying more for a product just because someone theoretically in Bangladesh might benefit more when they're hungry right now. So surely you could also argue that ethical markets are meant to be nothing more than Western consumer guilt about what they're buying while not engaging with the issue at hand. Thank you. Um, a lady in the blue top here. Hi. Um, I thought it was a good point about this being a fashion in it itself. Um, but I wanted to ask the panel what they thought about um, uh, some of the tactics of, of these um, consumer campaigns, in particular on the anniversary of the Rana Plaza um, collapse uh there was a there was, i think this earlier this year there was a, a a new campaign that started called something like inside out i can't quite remember the exact title but it really worried me and i thought it 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 showed one of the kind of underlying um sort of un, unspoken um angles of of ethical ethical consumerism which is really about a sort of um sneering sneering at the hoi polloi i think you you mentioned that um jason and in that people were being asked to wear their clothes inside out so that you could see the label on, on the back of the garment um, uh, uh, to basically, I suppose, to show off that you were, you were being ethical in, in um, consumption. Um, and, um, and I think that there's a... You know, I've, I've read other stuff by um, people writing about sustainable fashion that um, basically argues for... I think you mentioned, you know, that we need to, we need to spend more on our clothes in order to avoid... Um, 
exploitation. But I think, you know, a lot of this is kind of trying to draw a line between um, acceptable sh- acceptable shopping and unacceptable shopping, um, a sort of moral line in the sand between, um, you know, those who, who take themselves seriously as... as you know, as ethical, responsible people, and those who are simply irresponsible and selfish, and I, I think that's a kind of a real, a real concern. In that, um, it's supposed to be. Well, I think ethical shoppers often talk about some kind of solidarity with those workers in Bangladesh, but actually, what that what that's doing at home in terms of um, a kind of in- increased moral climate that dismisses um, people who who choose to to buy cheap clothes. I think that's quite worrying. And if you pass it to the lady in front of you. Uh, hi, and I... Does this sound... Yeah. Okay, um, I feel really mean in saying this because you all really want to be good and ethical and um, <laughs> and we all want to be this. And But, you know, from what I you hear, you want to, you know, promote, the, you know, good things in the world. But what I hear is a lot of global blackmail, you know, fair trade is sort of imposing um, a co-op style economic system on de- you know developing countries and you know the western economy is forcing Thailand to, to act in certain ways and this has a really chilling imperialist tone to it so um, you know and I find neither of these things very ethical nor fair so Maybe this is picking up where, where, where Natalie left off. Is, is ethical business really very ethical? Um, yeah, sorry. Um, and just pass it along. Hello. I was fairly appalled to hear the example of um, American apparel as being a knee-jerk response against Bangladesh. And it makes me want to boycott American apparel because I very definitely want to support the clothing industry in Bangladesh. And I'm horrified if people think it helps to spend their money on garments made in America where the garment workers uh, earn so much more than the poor people in Bangladesh. I actually work in Bangladesh several, several months each year. And it's very apparent how the uplift in the economy has helped families and helped children. More children are going to school. Primary education now almost every child goes at the beginning there's a fair dropout rate but at least children go because the money goes to the women and if women get money then that is more likely to be spent on children and families than if the male employment increases so that said of course we need a higher minimum wage we need more factory inspection we need more controls over all the awful things shown in that brilliant film on Rana Plaza that was shown on television so if there were more films like that so more people were aware of how badly wrong it can go but how I passionately want to support the clothing industry in Bangladesh and I'm horrified if there's this knee-jerk thinking that oh bad things have happened there we shouldn't buy clothes from there no the opposite we should buy more but then help them and make sure the money goes to the right people thank you Jack go in the suit on the corner here thanks um well I've learnt a lot here um I think the overwhelming message I've got from all of you is that uh, this is a subject which is fraught with uh, paradox, blurdom, uh, dilemmas, difficulties, complexities, and so on. And, and you know, that, that's come from all of you. And <coughs> so I've got an observation on that as to why that is, and, and then a question to you. I mean, it seems to me that um, there's an essential or inherent 
dilemma in the values which have become dominant in, in, in the West over the last 20, 30 years, which I think makes it more than a fad or a fashion that we're, we're, we're dealing with here, that it seems that there's this, this inherent tension between, on the one hand, as a society, I'm not talking about in Bangladesh, but in the West, we've become pretty uncomfortable with production, with producing things. We've tended to highlight, as a society, how destructive production is, how uh, you know, it has a harmful effects on the, on the environment, it causes pollution, resource depletion, you know, possibly climate change, that there's all these sort of stressful, harsh, exploited workers who are producing these things. And clearly, when there's that sort of sense of uncomfortableness with, with production, then that does put consumption and then retail as the, the means to allow people to consume those things right in the firing line. And it sort of it means that in the most extreme form, that tension between being uncomfortable with production, on the other hand, we all know that we've got to produce and able to live. You know, we can't, we can't eat, we can't shelter ourselves, we can't you know, clothe ourselves, we can't do anything leisurable unless there is production going on. So we have that sort of dilemma, which at the individual level means, to me, it's an irreconcilable dilemma. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm interested then if that's, if that's a view that is shared. But the questions that come from that is it seems to me perhaps not to, not to say just you, Barbara, but it does seem that that message of complexity uh, and of the dilemmas and of the uh, paradoxes doesn't come out in fair trade advertising, right? It comes out as a very simple message of saying, you buy this and you're doing some good. And it seems to me that it's a bit perhaps misleading or disingenuous or perhaps, you know, we're not treating people in as, as real adults by, not, by hiding that complexity in the way that one advertises so-called ethical products. And perhaps we'd be, you know, less, you know, I, I hesitate to use the term, but it seems a bit patronising to the great public that we don't make those complexities clear. Uh, and perhaps to, to you, Andrew, a question, the same the uh, theme. I've not read your pamphlet, so I'll read that tonight or tomorrow. But perhaps it would be better to be more um, uh, offensive in going out and making some of the points that have just been made about you know, Bangladesh and saying, yes, there are complexities in these supply chains, but overwhelmingly it's a great thing that there is people working in sweatshops now producing these goods because if they weren't working in sweatshops, they'd be working in even more harsh, arduous, back-breaking conditions on the mm -hmm. land. And I think you know, getting your heads above the parapet and getting your, your members, your big retail organisations, to actually be more upfront and saying, this is a good thing. Yes, there are difficulties with it, but it's a far, far, far better thing. And I don't hear that message coming out from the supermarket chains or the big retailers. Okay, thank you. Uh, there should be um, uh, time for a few more points or questions, but um, I'll come back out afterwards. So I'm going to give our panel an opportunity to um, address, maybe just pick one thing. Um, so you can't be answering all of those questions. Mm. Um, uh, so just pick one you fancy. Um, that and means I'll we'll only answer four of the people. Yeah. Um, is that and fair? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll go in reverse order. So, Natalie, would Bye. you uh, like to kick us off? Yes. I do. I mean, I would agree with the last point, that there is definitely a problem that nobody wants to, to stand up for production, not even the producers themselves. And, and the fact that there's not much... Um, you know, pe people pay too little attention to what would happen if we actually buy less, um, because that would mean we would produce less and there would be fewer opportunities for people to become producers or to work within, you know, the production line. So we would be, um, you know, denying people the chance to work in, in faraway places. And I think what we need to do also is to kind of have 
a bit more of imagination of what it's like to live another kind of life than the one that we live. So, for instance, I don't want to work in a factory all day myself. Uh, I have the luxury of options, you know, where I don't have to do that. And in a context like Bangladesh, they have another set of options, the people who, who end up working in what we're labelling as sweatshops. And within those range of options right now, in this moment of their lives, working in a factory might be the best option. And that's hard for us to imagine because we don't live in their reality just as they don't live in our reality. So I think we need a sort of, I, I want to call for a better sort of vivid imagination and, and empathy, really. And so we just look upon um, their life situations as something undesir undesirable and necessarily horrific and even as slavery, which is bizarre because, you know, not to mention what that says about real slavery, you know, we're, we're really kind of relativizing that to death. So, so I think more imagination is, is uh, key. Um, yes, well, I, I think I'll go back to the lady in, in blue about, um, you mentioned uh, what, what the inside out, it was actually Fashion Revolution Day um, that was the anniversary on the 24th of April um, of the Rana Plaza disaster, and it was really a coming together of a lot of different actors, smaller and larger, um, and across the world, um, to really try to not forget um, the meaning of, of what happened and the reality of what happened and the bigger picture of the garment-making industry, which, yes, is, as I said earlier on, is extremely valuable to economies across the world. But the point of um, the inside out was, was really as um, just something simple that everybody could do uh, that would just highlight, it was an awareness-raising campaign, um, that would just highlight the, um, the fact that these, <laughs> these garments that we're wearing are, are made all over the world. Um, obviously, if you, if you happen to choose a T-shirt that was, had certain, um, you know, maybe was made of sort of a more ecological sort of material, perhaps, or sort of organic cotton, that might have been one message that you could help spread to other people. That's not, certainly not, and it wasn't about my clothes are better than your clothes, which was the way that you seem to interpret it. Um, so actually it was, a it was a real grassroots movement that was worldwide and that's going to keep on happening. And it's just one of the things that I think is irreversible now. I don't think, I do believe after working in this area of sustainable fashion for quite some time, that, that there's no going back. I just don't think we can sort of put any genies back in the bottle. I mean, there, were, there have been previous times, you know, you can remember sort of the, um, the early 90s and Esprit's campaign, and there was a sort of eco-fashion had this dreadful, you know, um, image. And I don't like that phrase even anymore. But I think that people are really beginning to understand through campaigns such as this some of the realities. And it is complex, absolutely is complex, but I think that we can help um, generate awareness and uh, much more consciousness. And yes, clothing will have to gradually rise uh, because it's gradually got really, really cheap, much too cheap. I wasn't here for that day, but I doubt, did anyone wear the Primark t shirt? Uh, I think they did, yeah. I think they that did, was the point. Okay. Yeah. I think and I, I, I wore a Sainsbury's 2 top yeah, that yeah, day, yeah. like if we want to talk low-end uh, stuff. Yeah. And I think and the, it, point, the point of Fashion Revolution Day, the point of turning your clothes inside out was not to be a, you know, I've got the best brand, I've got the worst brand. It was to say, where, 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 where has this come made, from? Yeah. 
So it was to show them where was this made yeah. and ask and, and ask if it didn't if it wasn't clear where was it made and, and that, that's fantastic. Um, it, and it, I think that's that's it, what comes to, to my point, which I think is I, I want to just pick up on, on the point of transparency that a lot of you um, were raising. And I think I think brands, companies, supply chains, we are entering into an era, era I think, potentially of radical transparency is, is going to happen because we are, we are at a stage now where workers can be um, putting what's going on in a factory up onto the internet, um, you know, ethical audit. So, we, I mean, it, it raises a really interesting question for anybody involved in ethical auditing because actually empowered workers in the supply chain, empowered farmers in their supply chain can be now telling how it is increasingly. And I think, I think that go, that's going to raise some really interesting questions for anybody involved um, in this. And I wouldn't necessarily make the assumption in all of this, that it's always the lowest cost fashion that is is reliant on mm. poverty wages. That's not necessarily the case. I think where, where there is absolutely no transparency anywhere is around who gets paid what for their part of the supply chain. And any attempt to share that kind of information at the moment, you're kind of straight into issues of competition law um, and Office of Fair Trading. Um, regulations, especially if, if, if anybody, if, if, if an industry comes together to look at what is the basic cost of sustainable production of any given item, um, I think you, there's, so, a, there's a real there's a real challenge. So there. are you saying you want companies to open their books completely about the? I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether it's about opening the books about every single item, but I think there is there is something which is about if in, in the fair trade system. We kind of have a set of standards around whatever wage levels, et cetera, et cetera, that, that need to be paid. Now, a company might say, we're matching that. The question is, where's the evidence of it? Who's checking it? Where's the verification of it? I think eventually there's going to become a point where companies are going to be asked to say what their value proposition is and whether we need a redistribution of value within that supply chain. Can we achieve... Can we achieve Actually, with, it, with very little adjustment at the consumer end, can you actually achieve more transparent, more sustainable supply chains back down the system? I think Oxfam did a really interesting study with Asda's um, suppliers of flowers um, from Africa, and they concluded that actually they could, get, they could bridge the gap between the Kenyan minimum wage, which is pretty much poverty wages, and what would be a living wage in Kenya... If, if by adding about three pence to the cost of a bunch of flowers, um, you would actually be able to bridge that gap overnight mm -hmm. in Kenya if all of that three pence ended up back in wages. Now, it may be that you don't need to add the three pence. It may be that that three pence can be found within the supply chain anyway, and you can do you can deliver that. But I think there are. I think there is there is a there is a really interesting era that we're going to en enter Absolutely. into where consumers will have a lot more information, possibly information overload. Um, can I, can I just finish no, on the transparency of fair trade? Very, very quickly, otherwise um, Andrew will have no time. Yeah, sorry. Um, I just wanted to pick up your point because um, as it was, it was directed to me. Um, I think you're right, it is complex and I don't, I don't want to get sort of <clears throat> blurred between where fair trade is working and those supply chains are operating, they are making a difference. So I think the claims that we're making... Um, we're trying to make sure that they are honest and transparent, that we're reporting on the actual difference that is being analysed on the ground with the farmers. That doesn't necessarily mean, as you, know, as you say, that everything 
everything is being solved or everything is making progress and there are challenges. We're trying to put more of those challenges out there as we did with our banana report in terms of the challenges that banana farms are still facing, even the ones that are in the fair trade system, smallholders. We're trying to put that out there a lot more. So I take, I take your point and I think it's something that we're trying to do a lot more of in terms of what are the wider challenges that farmers still face even if they're in the fair trade system. Andrew, so I'll be really quick. Um, imperialism, um, it could be patronising, but I don't think asking a country to do things that it itself has in its own legislation to do it is a problem. So Bangladesh to review its minimum wage or ties to enforce human rights, which they've signed up to alongside other, every other country around the world, yes. I think that's perfectly feasible for us to use and should be an appropriate use of our market power. Um, secondly, supply chains are really, really complex. So nobody's talked about Uzbek cotton or musing of wool yet in terms of anything to do where it goes further down the supply chain. Everybody tends to look at the production itself. What about the raw materials which are coming into production and how complex that is? And then the third point, the point about the debate. Yeah, we, we love to have this kind of debate, and we do. The problem in this country is, is our media is not always up for a very balanced kind of debate um, which talks about these kind of issues, frankly. You know, they are writing from a certain perspective which is going to sell papers which tends to be more confrontational than it's likely to be around informative. can't believe none of you mentioned Uzbek cop. What do you like? <laughs> so, um, I've got one. Uh, it's dealt with in, in, in these books. Is it? Oh, yes. There you go. Another reason to buy one. <laughs> I just have to say that. Um, there's been a lot of great stuff about what may or may not be moral or ethical, but if you have a kind of personal code of ethics, no matter what it's based on, even if it's fascism, for instance, or you know, socialism or whatever, is it even possible to <laughs> fulfil those kind of requirements in, in a capitalist society in the sense that, as you said, the supply chains are so complex, you just have no idea, and maybe even the companies producing have no idea what is going on at each stage. How could you ever be comfortable you know, knowing that your ethics, ethical code is being fulfilled? when you're shopping. Uh, just a couple of observations. I was uh, rather wryly amused when Barbara said that the third world, the expression the third world, is now part of the past. Uh, very true. And how, it, how has it become part of the past? Well, it does not become part of the past by more small producers being in uh, small producers' associations. It's come about by rapid capitalist development under various governments. The other point, though, is that I'm wondering how much this is new, this um, issue is new, because mass consumption has been a contested issue right from the get-go. Um, the, there were the question of boycotting sugar in 18th century, early 19th century Britain because it was produced by literal slaves. That was a major thing in, in the 1830s, 1840s, you got um, protest campaigns about, again, the fashion industry and exploitation. And I think Sandy is right to say that the fashion industry gets um, more stick for exploitation within its supply chains than other industries because of its perceived frivolity and so on. But there was Thomas Hood's Song of the Shirt and many other campaigns about um, sweatshops. Um, Fashion, uh, fashion consumption has always been ethically contested, and you can 
think of examples right the way through the history of capitalism, whether it's buying um, products made by union labor or by British or by well-paid German workers rather than exploited Russians, etc., etc. So the question I'd like to, I'm kind of asking is, is this something, this question about sustainability and ethical shopping, ethical <coughs> consumption, a new, a, as new an issue as we think? Uh, maybe just on the point you made about American apparel before, and it's on uh, ambiguity within corporations. To what extent do you think there actually is a sense of morality within these big companies, or do you think it's just a marketing tool? Because it's shown in the past when companies act in a particularly morally, um, morally positive way, such as compensating customers when they've withdrawn a product or something of that ilk. It's helped the public image and the shares have went up. So to what extent do you think these these like, these like managers high up in the companies do have a sense of um, their own morality that they are trying to implement, or is it just a marketing tool or something to help the to help their own company? Another another aspect of the um, in the point made here, I thought, was that how some of these campaigns just are, are very strange and go wrong sometimes. So the um, the boycott of um, Stolage Nine, um, Stolage Nine or Smirnoff vodka, as uh, um, uh, because of the uh, gay rights situation in Russia, where that vodka company actually um, uh, supports gay pride marches all over the world. And it was that was a, it was very you know there's, there's just some very odd. Um, uh, mm. things that go on under the guise of these uh, sort of ethical campaigns. So uh, we've got about a minute each left for you to address anything that um, uh, you'd like to that's still on the table, your final points. Um, so should, should we go in the... Do you want to go first, Jim? Yeah, I'm happy to go first. So yes, it is possible, but it's very difficult. But there are good examples of partnership in simple supply chains like dairy, for example, in the UK, which you could roll out. But it rely on more collaboration and partnership. Um, I think I totally agree with the point, and if you look at our paper, one of the key issues which came out in the discussions is trust, is trust must pervade the whole of the company. So from the board of directors through the executive right through the company, if it's really to believed, and those companies that do that and are trusted in that way have their, their communication is much more trusted than other companies. So I, I would totally endorse that, and it's something that every company would um, look at. Um, I think there's a saying, I want to pick up the point about, you know, we've all got a personal code of ethics and is it possible to live it out in its fullness? And I think I, think I kind of live by the mantra that it's better to light one candle in the darkness than just to curse the darkness, um, which is I think it's very, very difficult to meet every single bit of criteria that you might have, that any, any one of us might have different from each other. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's not worth trying and it's not worth doing one thing for the sake of not being able to do it all should we should we be able to do one thing and i think i i think we we definitely can enact um a change and i think the very fact that we're having this debate shows the 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 journey that we've been on that business has been on that government is currently on um over the last over the last uh, 15 20 years i think the trans the the way in which we are more exposed than ever we were to what is the reality within those supply chains. And I do think, you know, back to the production and, and, and consumption um, debate, I do think we, we, we do need to start now to marry that sense of 
buying less but better, not necessarily paying more <coughs> for everything, but being very mindful of overconsumption. And the, the, the most ethical choice, I think, that we ever make in, 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 uh, when we're out shopping is, should, do I actually need this thing? Do I really need this thing in the first point? And, and you know, and that's, and I think that's, that's going to be the starting point of where ethical consumption is going to have to go in a resource-challenged world. You can't start now. You've had your chance Sorry. to make the point. <laughs> Sandy. That, I've not said anything about Primark. <laughs> just ignore yeah. Um I was just you know, thinking about this, this point of, um, you know, nothing is new. It's not the first, you know, capitalism and so on. We are in this, this uh, system, but we have to do things differently. We're now, you know, we've, we've come, we have come a long way, even in the last... 10 years or 15 years in terms of my industry because, um, you know, technology has enabled this, this sort of um, exposure for one thing and uh, the accountability that, I mean, at one point retailers just used to buy stuff and sell it. Now they have to actually make some account of, of what their supply chains are and that is actually quite joining some of, you know, the one, you know, the, the, the front of the supply chain to the, to the end. There are many buyers and so on who are quite key in any supply chain who in the fashion business would never have ever known anything about how things were produced. So I think, um, although it's not new, I think we are looking for new paradigms and we are looking to uh, change consumption patterns through education and through... But we're still not... We're not trying to take away the, the joy or the delight in, in sort of, you know, life. And I think that that's, uh, it's not all doom and gloom. I think we have to find new ways to communicate and celebrate and, uh, so that everybody, everything and everybody can flourish. Right. Um, someone asked, do, is there reason to believe that, I think it was you, that they really believe in all this stuff? Well, I, I think we have to just believe the likes of, of Andrew and when they say that they love sustainability and, and all the rest of it. And <laughs> probably there is an element of lip service going on, but the presumption that sustainability, for instance, is a good thing is so widespread today that there's no reason to believe that also CEOs, designers and so on within these fashion uh, Western fashion companies also think it's a good thing without, without actually questioning it enough, I would say. Like, it hasn't been questioned that much today either. I think it's unsustainable, for instance, to expect uh, poor farmers not to um, mechanise their uh, production, not to expand, not to um, uh, go, you, you know, to, to um, persist in this sort of subsistence uh, farming condition, which, because that means that they will never move on, their children will never move on, their grandchildren will never move on, whereas, you know, uh, their neighbouring village uh, might have uh, people who have gone to the big city and, and worked in factories and their um, opportunities will be a lot greater. So I think that is a more sustainable uh, view uh, of, of consumption and production. And the final thing I would say that it's kind of ironic that anti, the anti-consumption movement or anti-consumption enthusiasts here uh, in the West always make their, their argument and demonstrate their um, ideals through consumption. I mean, it's they're so anti-consumption, and the way that they can express that is through consumption and through their consumption consumer choices um, um, by you know buying organic or you know demonstrating through what they consume. That's where they feel that their political power is, and that's a paradoxical again. <laughs>
Thank you. I've uh, just noticed in the um, free booklet by the British Retail Consortium that you've got that not only um, are um, uh, BRC sponsoring this debate, but they've also um, been having a, a series of, um, of seminars. And I think that uh, you know, sh shows something about the, the commitment uh, debate, which is absolutely what the um, uh, battle of ideas is about. So um, thank you very much to them, and thank you very much to all of our panel and to you for your points. So round of applause, please.